Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for all citizens. This podcast was brought to you by the Alabama Science of Reading group on Facebook. With free professional learning and a community dedicated to improving reading, it's no wonder that so many people are part of this. If you aren't a member already, join for free online. I'm your host, Shelley Vale-Smith. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Lindsay Claire Matsumara. Dr. Lindsay Claire Matsumara is a professor in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Leading at the University of Pittsburgh. She holds a joint appointment as a senior scientist at the Learning Research and Development Center, where she is a research practice partner with the Institute for Learning. Her research centers around literacy instruction and learning. She is especially interested in understanding processes of teacher learning to enact dialogic instruction through remote literacy coaching, the use of artificial intelligence to improve formative feedback and students' text-based argument writing, and the integration of reading and writing in both face-to-face and online classrooms. The results of her research have been published in both scholarly and practitioner-focused journals, such as The Reading Teacher and The Learning Professional. She also has published a book for teachers focused on developing high-quality writing assignments. Welcome, Lindsay. I'm so excited to have you here today. I've become a big fan of your work. Well, thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us how you started working with literacy? I became interested in literacy instruction when I was in graduate school at UCLA. And as a student, I worked on a project with my advisor, Ron Gallimore, looking at the impact of a discussion-based reading comprehension intervention on English language learning students' reading and writing skills. And after I finished my PhD, I worked as a researcher studying the early steps to reading success in California before coming to the University of Pittsburgh. And it's at Pitt where I really became interested in not just looking at literacy instruction and learning, but really understanding how teachers learn to enact rigorous and interactive forms of instruction. And particularly, I'm interested in in classroom discussions. So at that time, I got involved with the Institute for Learning, which had developed the content-focused coaching program, which was in use in several school districts around the country. And I um, ended up partnering with them to study the effect of content-focused coaching on reading comprehension instruction and students' reading skills in the upper elementary grades. Wow, that's so impressive. And I was just thinking, as you said, from California to Pittsburgh, that's some pretty dramatic changes in and of itself, just climate wise and the scope of that work, really looking at how do we actually do things in the classroom that the research tells us we ought to be doing. And it's not quite that easy. So I first learned about your work through reading about coaching, and you and I have talked about how there's this misconception that coaching is a fix for a lot of instructional issues. We just get an instructional coach, then we're going to improve things, but it's really this very complex endeavor. What do you think good coaching is, and what does it look like in schools? Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of my favorite questions, so thank you. So in our work, what we've learned is that um, effective coaching engages teachers in focused and sustained work to advance particular teaching goals. 
So uh, in order to be effective, there really needs to be a concentrated focus for the coach's work. And oftentimes you find in schools that coaches are asked to work across all grades and in all domains of the literacy curricula. And sometimes we see that coaches are expected to work across content areas, you know, like math and reading, which is really problematic because no one person has the expertise and knowledge that you need to mentor teachers in all grades and content areas. I think some of this um, stems from the fact that there can be a concern with fairness in schools, which is defined as all teachers having access to a coach to work on whatever they want to work on. And the problem can be that coaches don't have enough time to work then with teachers at the level of intensity that you need to make substantive changes in teaching that are necessary to increase students' knowledge and skills. So in our research, we found that coaching that makes a difference in student achievement really focuses on particular grade bands and centers on a particular high leverage instructional practice. For example, supporting teachers to facilitate interactive and rigorous class discussions or, you know, developing students' analytic writing skills. We found that it's also really important that coaching be based in the curricula that teachers are teaching. Right. It really, coaching has to be embedded in teachers' daily work and practice. And in terms of how coaches work with teachers, first, it's important that teachers have knowledge of an instructional practice, that they know what the practice looks like generally, but really, more importantly, why teaching a certain way is consequential to students' learning. This is really important to have this beginning working conceptual base that the coaching can then leverage, right? You know, grow that learning. So to develop this knowledge, coaches, effective coaches work with teachers in teams, for example, you know, grade level teams to read about, study, and discuss an instructional practice, and also to plan lessons that utilize or leverage this practice based in the curricula. Also, we found that effective coaches model practices for teachers. So they could bring in samples of lesson plans that are based in the curricula that teachers are teaching to study and perhaps, you know, for teachers to try out in their classroom. And this is a way to launch teachers to begin to plan lessons independently and to work with coaches to hone their lesson planning skills. We also found that an effective way for coaches to begin their work with teachers is to model the instructional practice teachers are to learn in the classroom and invite the teacher to observe the lesson, right, to observe the coach teaching with a particular focus on student engagement and the thinking students are expressing in the discussion. Then the coach and the teacher debrief about the lesson, student participation, and what the next steps might be to grow students' thinking. So this modeling uh, the practice in the classroom is important. It serves many functions. First, it shows teacher that a practice like rigorous and interactive discussions can occur in their classroom with their kids, right? Their kids are capable of participating in ambitious forms of instruction. Um, Second, it shows the teacher that the coach has instructional skills, right? So it helps establish the street cred of the coach. And finally, inviting teachers to comment on the link between what the coach did and student participation and thinking is important, we think, for establishing a learning stance. And by this, I mean the idea that all teachers and professionals in every field, right, can and should seek to grow and improve their work. So coaching should not be about fixing teachers who are quote unquote broken. You know, this is really a deficit view of coaching and teachers, and it's really unproductive. 
as far as I'm concerned, you know, we often tell teachers not to have deficit views of students. I think we should be really careful not to promote deficit views of teachers either. So coaching should really be thought of as a way for all teachers to be in a process of continuous learning and honing their teaching skills at every stage of their professional journey. I love that because so many times we do see instructional coaches placed with what administrators see as maybe the lowest performing teachers. They're Mm -hmm. the neediest people. And it is perpetuating this really deficit view of people. And you're right. How do we ask teachers to have this kind of asset view of children when we don't have that of adults? Yeah. In terms of how coaches work with teachers, right, um, in ways that, you know, grow everyone's skills, in addition to working in grade level teams and modeling practices, coaches engage teachers in cycles of pre-conferences, observation, and post-conferences. So in the pre-conference, the coach and the teacher discuss the teacher's plan for the upcoming lesson. So in the context of reading comprehension, this might include reflecting on a text that a teacher chose right? It's impossible to have a rich discussion if there isn't any grist in the text, right? If there's nothing really interesting to talk about. Uh, The coach and the teacher might think about the teacher's learning goals. Um, Are these maybe a bit too general? Maybe they're not as well suited to the content as they could be. They might consider what a teacher anticipates student might get confused about in a text or what background knowledge and vocabulary a teacher might want to fill in. The coach then observes the lesson. And then after that, the coach and teacher meet in a post-conference to reflect on what happened with the focus on the link between what a teacher said, right? The the question she asked, how she responded to students, and then what students expressed in their response. For example, you know, they might think about are students expressing high-level thinking in their answers? Are they working together, right? Are students, you know, linking their ideas to the ideas expressed by other students? And then from that perspective, thinking about, well, what did the teacher do maybe to open up or narrow students' opportunity to respond in certain ways, right? So if a teacher and a coach study and and notice that students are, you know, expressing short one-word responses, a coach might draw students' attention to the questions the teacher is asking. Or if, for example, maybe in that case, the teacher might notice that, oh, actually, I've been posing mostly close-ended questions. And these are, you know, really funneling students to one right answer or funneling them to express sure recall of isolated facts. Or if students are not responding to each other or, you know, linking their ideas to one another, a coach might help a teacher think about talk moves, right? That could be used in future teaching situations, like teachers saying something like, you know, who wants to add on to what Maria said? Absolutely. And you just described this coaching cycle that many of us have worked with for for many different years. And I think sometimes it's so easy to reduce what an instructional coach does to that pre-planning moment. Mm -hmm. And and, and especially when you're working with multiple teachers, it really looks like in some cases we're helping people plan, but then it's just as important for that feedback in the moment and then that debrief and then even moving that to the next lesson. And so just listening to you, it just really reminded me how that is such a cycle and you can't have a full cycle when you don't do all the pieces. Yes, 
And just to add to that, it's really important for coaches to plan for their post-conferences, right? In the same way that we want teachers to plan for their lessons, coaches need to really think about where is the teacher at in their learning and, and also think about like, what's a really high leverage moment to focus on in the teacher's instruction, you know, that we want to use as a basis for the post-conference, right? So generally you would think that a coach would want to identify a couple of moments in the lesson that would be, you know, provide a lot of grist for, for teacher learning. You're not going to debrief about every aspect of the lesson, right? And you're not going to talk about the entire lesson because that would take too long. So really figuring out what you want to zoom in on is really critical. And that takes a lot of skill on a coach's part to really identify mm-hmm. what that high leverage moment is. Mm-hmm. It, it really, really does. So what have you learned about making coaching work that people should know about before deciding to add a coach to their faculty? Well, first, it's really important to create the conditions that support coaches' work and uh, instructional change. And I I can't emphasize enough the important role that principals play in creating these conditions. So we know from a search, my own and others, that literacy coaches often are tasked with a myriad of responsibilities, and this really takes away from their time to work with teachers. And these responsibilities include administrative tasks, tutoring students, bus duty, coordinating assessments you know, important work in schools and and tasks that have to get done. But the problem is, is that this really takes away the time that coaches have to work in a sustained way with teachers to plan, observe, and reflect on instruction. And the thing is, if you don't have that sustained focused work, you are not going to see the substantive improvements in teaching that really, you know, move the needle on student achievement. So it's really important that there's a job description for coaches that clearly delineates their responsibility and that principals really take seriously and and support the coach to protect their time so that they can work with teachers. It's also really important that principals signal their support for coaching to teachers, right, as well as their endorsement of the ambitious forms of instruction that coaches are ideally, you know, working to, to promote. So principals can do this by visiting classrooms when coaches are modeling lessons. Principals signal their support for coaches by asking them to lead school-level professional development and also by themselves attending the coach-led professional study groups with teachers, right, where they're studying and learning about an instructional model. And, you know, when busy principals take time to participate and engage in discussions with coaches and teachers. This really tells teachers that working with a coach matters, that it's a priority for the school, right? If the work is worth the principal's time, it's worth their time also. I could not agree with that more. And just as a principal who worked very closely with instructional coaches, they were my partner and we really approached it in such a a coordinated way. And so I believe that it is essential, not only for people to see that you're working together, but for you to be on the same page and and doing the work together. Also, because in terms of the, the practices that the instructional practices that coaches are focusing on in their work with teachers, it's important to for teachers to know that that the principal endorses that vision, right, for teaching. 
And that when the principal, when it comes time, for example, to evaluate teachers or to observe them in their classroom, to know that what they're doing is really going to be appreciated by the principal. Yes, I agree. So thinking about supporting coaches, what should we be doing to train and prepare them? And maybe what is something that schools could do to make coaches and coaching more effective? Well, first of all, coaches really do need opportunities to to develop and hone their skills. And, you know, there's generally speaking, not been a lot of professional learning opportunities for coaches and districts, right? So this is a, a real need in the field. In my own work with colleagues at, at Pitt, and I want to give a shout out to Rip Carrenti, Dina Zocal, and Marguerite Walsh, but we've been in the process of developing and studying a coach professional development program. And the Institute for Learning at the University of Pittsburgh also has been working you know, for many years to train coaches in content-focused coaching both in in math and in reading. But um, basically, the processes you would use for coaching teachers apply to developing coaches' conferring skills, right? So you need to have opportunities for coaches to study models of effective conferring and why particular ways of responding to teachers is important for increasing teachers' knowledge and skills. Coaches also need opportunities to apply this thinking, for example, by analyzing transcripts of pre- and post-conferences. And then also, they need opportunities to get feedback on their conferring practice. You know, And this can occur either through individual coaching, right, around their conferring with teachers and this you know, coaching provided by a more expert coach, or in video clubs. This is something that um, people are beginning to try out, but clubs where coaches basically basically bring in video snippets of their work with teachers and then coaches work together to reflect on the conferring and and think about alternative conferring moves you know a coach could use uh, in the in their future practice wow you talk about opening up your practice video clubs sound like the ultimate in that seeking feedback and being open to what people have to say to you to get better right and it's really important for creating um, a learning culture right and in a school and in a district for basically everybody opening up their practice for and and taking the stance that like I was mentioning earlier with teachers, but that you know there's room for improvement for all of us in in all professions. We need to be working continuously to improve our skills. Absolutely. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on how we can measure the effectiveness of coaching beyond test scores, because so many times in our current world where we have high stakes testing, Mm -hmm. it seems like that that's the only thing that people are looking for to measure success. Mm -hmm. Well, I think really to measure the success of coaches, I think you would really want to focus. I mean, of course, you want to be thinking about student learning, but I would backward map and really think about students' learning opportunities. So a focus on what's going on in the classroom as a result of teachers' work with the coaches. So for example, like I was was talking about earlier, I would be in classrooms really thinking a lot about what's going on in those discussions. You know, how are students participating? How are they responding? Or do we see them digging in really deeply uh, in thinking about what they're reading or, you know, thinking or or looking at the kinds of writing that students are producing, you know, are they expressing high level thinking in their, in their writing? Are they 
expressing details? Are they developing argument? I think this is really important to have that be a significant metric of coaches success because we know that tests, the achievement tests that are given to students are often pretty impoverished, right? They are not necessarily capturing advanced forms of instruction, right? I mean, we see a lot of test prep going on in classrooms uh, that are getting students ready for tests, but that's not necessarily really supporting students to master everything they need to know in a, in a grade level curricula to be successful in future grades. Absolutely. So I really became interested in your work around video coaching and am totally intrigued with this. What can you tell us about this concept? How does it work? And is it as effective as coaching in this kind of traditional face-to-face format? Well, this is a, a beginning line of work. And actually, we're seeing groups, you know, researchers around the country beginning to develop this as an approach. And I would say that, you know, on the main, it is a very effective way of working with teachers. So in in our work, we got involved in video coaching based on the success of what we saw with the Institute for Learning's content-focused coaching program, right? So that was where the Institute for Learning went in and trained literacy coaches in the district, you know, worked with them over a long period of time. And those coaches in turn were working in person with, you know, teachers in their school. And after the seeing the success of that, we thought about, yeah, but what about districts where people can't afford literacy coaches, right? To put a literacy coach in every school. This is particularly an issue in rural parts of the country. So we got really interested in thinking about how can we make coaching accessible to all districts. So we developed an online application of literacy coaching, and this is comprised of a workshop, right? This is, you know, where teachers can study the practice, look at the models, try their hand at applying the model, basically the work that a coach in person would be doing with teachers in in grade level teams. So after teachers complete the workshop, they um, work with a remote coach, right? And in our study, we had teachers on the Northeast, we had teachers in the South, um, and they were working with a coach that was located in Baltimore. So, you know, you really can do this work remotely. But um, the way it works is that teachers, the teacher and the coach meet over the phone or they meet over Zoom for the pre-conference. The teacher then videos their lesson and uploads that to a secure server. The coach then identifies um, three clips about two minutes long, and then uploads that to another server. And for each of the clips, the coach poses a reflection question and which the teacher then responds to. So there's this asynchronous kind of pre-work before the coach and the teacher meet in a, in a post-conference. And, you know, this is of course something that you can't do or often will not do an in-person coaching, right? This, this asynchronous piece. And we found that it's been really important. You know, it's, it's laborious for the coach. It's an, it's an extra step, but it really supports the teacher coming to the post-conference much more prepared to talk about what happened in the instruction. It gives teachers a preview of what the coach is thinking Right. So they're not walking into a post-conference, you know, wondering what's going to happen. And also um, because this is video, you know, it can be really hard to watch yourself on video. Right. At least for me, there's this real shock value. It's like, 
do I really talk like that? And <laughs> my hair looks terrible. It, it, it can be kind of a hard thing to get with. So having the coach, or I'm sorry, having the teacher have a chance to, you know, see themselves on video and kind of process that in advance of meeting also is really important for making sure the post-conference is, you know, really focused on, on the instruction itself. Anyway, after that, the coach and the teacher meet and they watch each of the lesson clips together. Again, this is, you know, right now we've been doing that over Zoom. And then they they have that discussion, you know, reflection on the lesson segments, which is, you know, similar to what you would see in, in in-person coaching. Well, I just was thinking making it those very short clip is so much more focused. And it's also in that asset-based model where we're not looking at, in this five minutes, you had a a student doing no telling what. You're really looking for really these clips that reinforce the concepts that you were planning for. Yes. So one of the things that teachers and the coach do in a pre-conference is they think about, you know, what part of this model. So in our case, we've been doing, you know, dialogic reading instruction or, you know, rigorous interactive text discussion. That's another way to think about it. So there's a a setting of a pedagogical goal. Like a teacher might say, okay, I really want to work on the kinds of um, questions that I'm asking students. You know, I want to, I want to work on asking the kinds of questions that support students to work together to construct the gist of a text. Or they might say, I want to work asking questions and supporting students to have a more rigorous discussion. So there's a focus, right, that's been established. So when a coach is choosing the clips, they're thinking not just about, you know, high leverage moments for teacher learning, but thinking about that in the context of, you know, honoring what the teacher wants to study. And this is important because I think that coaching that you often see really focuses on the idea of the coach and the teacher are just going to work on something that the teacher wants to work on. So we're a little bit different. It's like we're honoring teacher voice in the coaching, but it's not just, you know, work on whatever you want to work on. It's like what you want to focus on in the context of this particular instructional model. That's fascinating. So one of the other areas of research that you've combined with coaching is what we're talking about with improving reading comprehension through these dialogic conversations. And so what can you tell us about this and how it can help students? A a key idea, right? When you're thinking about, you know, dialogic reading instruction, why it works is the idea that students, that what people experience socially becomes internalized to become a mental function. So the nexus or the big idea for a discussion should be that students have an opportunity to engage in the kinds of meaning-making processes that we want them to eventually internalize to become active reading processes. So this is why it's so important to support students to be working together to figure out what the author was saying. It's important then to have them interrogating the meaning, asking questions, critiquing the reading, because these are all the kinds of processes that we want students to be able to apply when they're reading text independently. Absolutely. And I was just thinking about our earlier point about watching teachers ask higher order thinking questions but it's not just enough for teachers to ask the questions. We have to equip students with the skills 
to really answer. And we sometimes overlook the amount of skill that it takes to answer that kind of question. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also, it can be really important to create the space in a lesson for students to really do that thinking, right? So it's really kind of a a combination of teachers asking open-ended questions, right? Questions that don't have, you know, one right answer, but also, you know, encouraging students to to offer their ideas. So, you know, it's, it's really important to keep in mind that, you know, facilitating rigorous and interactive text discussions, you know, dialogic reading instruction, it is really a hard skill to master. Really, really tough because you really have to know um, when to step out of a discussion, right? Like how do you create that space for students to really work together? And when you might want to step into the conversation, right? Like if you see the discussion is starting to digress and moving away from the text, or there's some really interesting, important idea that was voiced by a student that's not necessarily being taken up. You know, you need to learn how to use talk moves or pedagogical moves to, you know, help shape the trajectory of of what's going on. So one thing that's that's particularly hard is the idea of putting the conversation in the hands of students, right? Letting students do the thinking. So when teachers are first starting out to implement these kinds of conversations or these kinds of discussions, you often will see teachers posing open-ended questions. But if students aren't just jumping in, right, with their ideas, um, there's a tendency to start to maybe follow up with these open-ended questions with Um, a lot of closed-ended questions. Or sometimes you can see challenges where teachers are really committed to not taking over the thinking in the conversation, but in in stepping out so much, you can see that, you know, the conversation starts to drift or, you know, thinking is not progressing in a very productive way. For example, students might be confused about what's in a text And that confusion might be leading to further confusion on the part of students. So um, that's what I mean, that that it's hard and it takes a lot of sustained study and work in order to be able to teach in that way. But it's really important because this way of teaching, right, dialogic instruction, um, rich classroom discussions, this is very much key to students' learning opportunities. And as you were describing all of those different scenarios and the talk moves, I taught high school English. And so I was thinking back on my own instructional practice with questioning. And I thought, wow, I wish I could go back and, and be a fly on that wall and and get better at it because it's one of those things that we don't really prepare teachers to do. No, no, we don't. So, and that's too bad because in our own university, there's so much press on all the things that you want to cram into a teacher education program. And, you know, you don't want to keep students there for multiple years because, you know, people are paying for their education and they want to be able to complete it pretty efficiently. But the downside of that is that teachers are then tasked with the difficult work of learning these really advanced skills on the job, right? 
And this is a big lift for teachers that are busy and have their own families. And may or may not have the kind of support from an instructional coach or the coaching support is not what it needs to be for them to really develop those skills. Right. Absolutely. So one of the things that you and I discussed earlier was the link from Dialogic Conversations to writing. Mm -hmm. And just could you share a little bit about, you know, how we can leverage these conversations into writing? Because uh, I really... I have not stopped thinking about our prior conversation and and how we need to flip some of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times when you're in classrooms and reading student writing, it, it can seem a bit thin, right? You don't often see necessarily a lot of in depth analysis and interpretation or use of, of details. And I think one of the reasons is that there's not a lot of talk in advance of writing. So, This is really important to have rich conversations before you take on a writing task so that students have a chance to think about what it is that they want to say. What do they want to say to their readers in their writing? So it's it's important to have rich conversations, not just the whole group discussions, which is, you know, what I've been talking about earlier, but you know, you can also support this kind of talk that gets students ready for analytic writing or other kinds of ambitious forms of writing um, by having students meet in small groups, by having students do pair shares. All of this, I think, is really critical for students to develop content for for their essays. I I love that because I, I see us a lot of times we read the book the teacher has discussed a lot with the class, but we really haven't let kids chew on it to the extent. And then we say, okay, go ahead and write on it. When, if we gave them more opportunities to discuss before writing, it, the potential for their writing to be much better and at a higher quality exists. And I just think that that's a, a flip that we haven't really talked enough about. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, particularly in terms of analytic writing or argument writing, you really want to have students have an opportunity to try out their ideas, right? So that, you know, they can get pushback from their peers or from their teachers, or also just being exposed to the thinking of other students can really give them ideas about, you know, what they want to write about, what they think is important. So it's really these... Talking in advance of writing is important for clarifying your thinking, for learning new ideas, and for having a chance to kind of try out an idea and and get some feedback. Absolutely. So if people want to know more about your work, where can they go to find out more? Well, we've published some articles in The Reading Teacher. We have one around harnessing the power of video that talks about, you know, implementing uh, online literacy coaching. We've also published in in multiple scholarly journals about the research. So if you just look me up on Google Scholar, it'll pull up a, a a list of articles. You can also, if you want to, go to the Institute for Learning website at the University of Pittsburgh. And that includes material um, both about my research, but also, you know, more information about content-focused coaching. Yes, because that's how I originally 
started reading all of your work and fell in love with it. So Lindsay, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to me and I've learned so much from you already. Well, thank you. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. Join us again for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network.